right, well, let's get into the Word. We're going to do most of our uh, study this morning from the book of Acts, but I want you to start in Philippians. On Wednesday night, God was leading us in a direction. Of course, we were talking about training your tongue, letting the Holy Spirit train your tongue, surrendering your mouth to God. And he says in the book of James that when you do that, the rudder, your tongue is like a rudder of a ship. It's tiny, but it controls everything. And when you can get your mouth right, the whole ship turns. We talked about the fact that the rudder turns the ship, not the ship turns the rudder. So often we get into uh, situations where things are going rough and things aren't doing that well and, and we start talking about it. We start really echoing what's going on and that's the wrong way around. The Bible tells us that your mouth sets the course, sets the direction. So when things aren't going well, you start saying what God says about the situation. You open your Bible and speak the word of God and the situation follows your mouth, not the other way around. But one of the things we got into later was, in the, in the end of that chapter in the book of James, was talking about peace in the church, was talking about peace in the body of Christ, peace amongst brethren, and how your mouth is instrumental in that. And uh, it talks about, we talked a little bit about unity. And one of the things that we talked about, and I'll reiterate this morning, is that unity is not just the lack of strife. Unity is not just, we don't have any strife, we're in unity. That's not true. And maybe some, I mean, God has called us to be a church united. And I don't just mean church like this church. I mean churches in the body of Christ, the entire body. We're meant to be united. Meant to be with one spirit, one heart, one mind, united in something. And so, you know, we could say, well, are you guys in unity? Well, we're not in strife. We're not fighting. But we must be in unity. That's not true. Like I said on Wednesday night, I, go to the, I could go to the mall. I don't often go to the mall here. But when I do, you know, there's a bunch of people there. You go to Walmart, there's people all over the place. You don't have to be fighting with those people. Most of the time, you're not. Most of the time, nobody's fighting, unless the lines are super long. But other than that, nobody's fighting. You're in Walmart, you got lots of people. Everybody's getting along, right? I mean, well, there's no strife. But nobody's in unity. We're not with one heart and one mind. You don't feel any bond with these people. You don't feel like, oh, we're on the same page. You, you're shopping at the same place, but there's no... There's no unity there. And unfortunately, church can become like that. We all show up. We're not fighting. But there's no unity. You're just kind of there. The Bible calls us the assembly. Talks about being assembled together. As one preacher put it, and I thought this was, was quite well. I believe it was Brother Dennis. He, he put it this way, and I, I, I liked how he said He says, you know, sometimes you get those those products that uh, or toys or things like that that say some assembly required. You dump everything out of the box. Everything's there. But that's not assembled. It might all be in the same place. You could put it in the same box, the same container, but it's not assembled. And you know, unfortunately, a lot of times we show up and we're all in the same place and nobody's fighting sometimes. I say sometimes. Lots of times. Nobody's fighting. Everybody's getting along. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And we're all there and we're happy and we're singing the same song. We're clapping. But unless the Spirit is leading us and unless we're all getting on board and saying, where are we going? Not just in the service, but in life and head there together. That's not necessarily unity. Just show up in the same place and smile at each other. That's not unity because we do that in the world. God's called us to a higher level of unity. I want to read you something in Philippians. Can you turn there? You know, I, we could go to a dozen different places in the Word this morning. I, I love to read things in context. And, you know, often Wednesday nights we'll, we'll do that. We've definitely gone through. I remember when we went through the book of Philippians verse by verse, and we learned a lot from it. And for the sake of time this morning, because we are going to go to a couple different places, I want to encourage you as noble students of the Word, as believers who have a Bible at home, to go back and read the entire thing. Because we'll take excerpts sometimes from time to time, um, and we'll back it up with other places in Scripture so that you can see what, what that verse means, what that place means. But I'd encourage you to go and read it in context, find its original purpose and meaning, just so that you can see it for yourself. And, and I believe that everything... Is, is enlightened by the stuff around it. And so um, sometimes we read a whole letter, we read one little sentence out of a whole letter and think that that's the point. But 
You read the whole letter, you realize God is saying something throughout the whole thing. So go back home and read the book of Philippians. Read, read some of these things. Read what's before it. Read what's after it. And be a student of the word. In Philippians chapter uh, 2, in verse 1, it says, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, I want you to hear that. There are three things he talks about. Well, later he says affection and compassion. Let's focus on these things. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit. Do you see the encouragement's meant to be in Christ? The consolation's meant to be in love, and the fellowship is in the Spirit. These things without God don't work. Fellowship, people have fellowship in the world. They go to the bar and drink together, but that's not holy. That's not sanctified. God's called us to something bigger. He says there's fellowship of the Spirit. There's something that cries out in you that it's just like the Scripture says, deep cries unto deep. There's something in you that, that, that just cries out to other believers and that that you don't know why you have a bond with these people. You don't know why you get along. They're totally different than you. They might be a different age. They might be a different class, as the world would put it. They may be a, just a totally different style of person than you, and somehow you're finding out that you get along, that you want to be together. That's the Holy Spirit inside of you. And I find this. This is my observation. This is my observation. This isn't the Bible, so just understand that. But my personal observation is when you start cooling down in the things of God, your relationships that God formed start to cool down as well. And you start to be drawn more to people that are just like you. You start to be drawn to people that dress like you, that have the same sort of job, that listen to the same music. You start be, becoming drawn to people that are like you in the flesh because you are acting more fleshly than usual. But when you become just, just on fire and consumed by the Spirit of God, you find that your friends are quite diverse. They come from different places and different backgrounds and different ages and different uh, styles and just jobs and, and, and parts of the country and all of this. And you look and you say, how could we ever be friends? This does not make sense. Well, it's the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit in them. And that's way more in common than you have with anybody else. This is our family. This is our tribe. Every now and then I've said to you, I mean, I, I got my start pastoring in a church where I was in the minority, race-wise. I was in the minority, age-wise. And yet there was such a bond that God formed with the people in that congregation because the Spirit was there. And I feel the same thing here. When you look around you, you've got quite a diversity of people for Lloyd Minster. I mean, you've got different ages, different races, different types of jobs, different... I mean, I don't know how you could get more diverse. But that's the Spirit of God. I've been in, I've been in parts of the, the world where there was a lot of racism and segregation throughout history. And you still go in certain places, and in this church, it's all black people. In this church, it's all white people. And you find it's like, it's, it's 2012. Can you believe there's still churches just all one color, right? I get that when you're like in Africa. That makes sense. I get that when you're like in Denmark, right? I mean, because there's not a lot of diversity out there in those places. But, but I'm talking about like in the church, in a city that has races all over the place, different, I mean, you've got this segregation going on. That's the funniest thing. And yet what I found is the churches that are on fire for God, full of the spirit, full of faith, and full of the word, they've got the greatest diversity I've ever seen. That's my personal observation from going to these churches. I look around and go, wow, these people all get along. And the music is different. Sometimes it feels more like this group and sometimes it feels like this group. And they don't care because you know what? They're worshiping God and they're having a great time. I remember dad preaching at a church in British Columbia that was like, it looked like we were doing a nursing home service. It was just, and the music was, was like, it was rough. Not just because it was old songs. I like old songs. It was just done rough. And uh, <laughs> that's all I'll say about it. But um, I remember just having the most wonderful time. And like I said, the music was rough. The songs were just, you know, I, they weren't even the old hymns. I liked the old hymns. They were like, 
old kind of country gospel that I just wasn't raised with. And I had such a wonderful time because of such a spirit of worship in the place. As we just began to worship the Lord, it didn't matter what the style was. It didn't matter what the, the way it was sung or the instruments that were played. God was there. And there's fellowship in the spirit that goes way beyond what the world can offer. The world says if we give you a common, uh, if, we, if we bring together that are enough people that are have things in common, you can get along. Maybe if we give you a common job, you'll get along, or a common class. And yet in the, in the church, in the word, in the body of Christ, there's a fellowship that goes beyond all that. It's something you can't see. And that's why you look around and it seems diverse, but in reality we're of the same spirit, of the same father, of one baptism, one heart. We are probably the least diverse pe group of people when you think about it because we are part of the family of God and we've been made in His likeness. We all look like Him. If you were to see in the Spirit, we'd all look alike because we've been created to look like Him. So we're probably the most homogenous group of people you've ever met if you were to see in the Spirit. And that's the way we must see because the Bible says from now on we don't judge anyone after the flesh. The Bible gives us no room for any division based on race, any division based on economic status, any division based on age. And boy, that's, real, that's something that's real easy to do. It's to make this a young church or an old church. Most of the time, music is the thing that turns it into one or the other. But the Bible gives us no place for any of those. The only room for, the only type of division that, that, that is encouraged in the word is a division between belief and unbelief. You don't believe? <laughs> I've decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Jesus said, I came to bring a sword of division. Who did he divide? Did he divide Jews and Gentiles? No. Did he divide men and women? No. In fact, women had more of a place in Jesus' honorage than they ever had anywhere else. You find, if you look in the his, history and the culture of the time, those women that could follow him everywhere that were part of his inner circle had a better place than they ever would have had anywhere else in society. Jesus gave them value, gave them worth. So he didn't do that. Did he divide by age? No, he, he, he had old people who, who, I mean, who loved him and followed him, and he had children that he said let the kids come to me so I mean the only division he ever so if he came to bring a sort of division what was the sort of division between those who believed him and those that didn't that's the only division that, that's that's allowed in the word of God that's the only division that's allowed in church now I'm not saying an unbeliever can't come in here and feel welcome and feel loved they should but I am saying if you came here for three years and you still don't believe, I would hope you're, you're at this point a little uncomfortable because uh, you, you shouldn't feel like, you know what, I don't believe a word they say, but it's fun here because, um, because you're not going to go at the great judgment seat of God, at, at this wonderful great white thorn judgment. You're not going to say, gee, I'm glad I had fun at church. I'm glad I wasn't too bothered. You're going to say, I'm glad I received Jesus. So I want people to get uncomfortable if they're here for a while and still don't believe. I want the Holy Spirit to poke you. And you know what? The Holy Spirit is way better at poking than I am, and I will never poke you. I tr trust me, that's not what I do. I don't need to be a jerk. I don't need to be mean. And I never will be, hopefully. But the Holy Spirit is going to work on you. And when you submit to the Holy Spirit, it's the best feeling in the world. When you resist the Holy Spirit, it's like the Apostle Paul when he used to be Saul. And Jesus said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. I've been poking you, and you've been kicking back. You see them, the Pharisees got angry, ripped out their hair, and yelled at the top of their lungs. That was what, that's what happens when you resist the Holy Spirit. But we're not those people. So there's only that kind of division. It says, if any affection and compassion, verse 2, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Of the same mind. Now boy, that sounds like a cult, doesn't it? <laughs> We're of the same mind. We think the same thing. 
it, it, but it's not. What this means of the same mind means that you're, you, you're, you're thinking, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is what it sounds like. You're thinking the same thing. You're on the same page. Uh, you're really after the same thing. That you're, when, when we talk about the mind, we're not just talking about being of the same brain, like you're just sharing one brain, but that you have the same will. That's really what we're getting at, that your will is the same, that you're headed the same way. I imagine sometimes, you know, we're believers and we're used to this kind of talk. I imagine somebody coming in might think we're a little bit weird from time to time. Hopefully they, they begin to discover that the love of God it fills in the gaps and fills in the cracks. I remember listening to one speaker, and the first time he ever came into a church service, he was totally freaked out because the lights were low because it was a worship time, and they were all <laughs> kind of holding hands. Because you remember we used to do that? A lot, like during the 80s and 90s. You know, we'd be on the piano. And uh, somebody said, I just want you guys to just join hands. Let's just join hands. I want to sing this, and we're just going to join hands. And the men in the audience were like, oh, man. And, and the women were like, this is so awesome. Oh, you know. And the, the men are just like, oh, this is great. Oh. Again with the hands thing. Right, okay. They said they came into the church, and they all join hands, and they're singing. We are one in the spirit. We are one. He was freaked out, man. <laughs> Not only does that sound creepy, both in melody and in lyric. We are one in the spirit. We are one. It's like, what did I get myself into? I just wanted to go to heaven, man. This is weird. <laughs> It's not a unity that you can understand outside of the Spirit of God. He binds us together in love. And Jesus says the way that you're gonna, they're going to know you're from me is by your love for one another. It says, I want you to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love. Can you hear that? When he says maintaining, that sounds like it takes some effort, doesn't it? It's not automatic. Maintaining the same love takes diligence, takes takes you saying to God, God, fill me up every day so that I have the love to love. The, the unlovable, the very lovable, the really, really unlovable. Maintain that love for each other because you know what? The, Jesus talked about a day when men's love would grow cold. King James says wax cold. That means it does not happen instantly. It gets colder and colder and colder and colder. After a while, you say, things aren't like they used to be. I remember we used to be so close. We're not like that anymore. You have relationships like that? They don't get cold just overnight. But after a while, if you don't maintain that, they go down from where God has designed them to be. He says, I want you to maintain the same love, united in spirit. United in spirit is different than united in the flesh. You know why? Because united in flesh, like I said, we're in the same place. We're doing a march together. We're going. We're doing a bottle drive together. But united in spirit goes much deeper. He says, I want you to be of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, now intent, same sort of word as intense, isn't it? Does that sound like we're just kind of got it in the back of our mind, the same purpose? Like there's a purpose that we just kind of, if somebody were to say, what are you guys, what are you guys, what's your goal? What are you really trying to do? So we'd have to think for a while. Ah, it's something to do with Lloyd. Something to do with Jesus. I know that, right? I know that, which is the answer you give in children's ministry all the time. We'd have, we'd have, I remember being in, in, in children's, children's ministry down there. As a kid, I remember, you know, the, the teacher would say something like, what color was Joseph's coat? And somebody would say, Jesus. You know, it just always is the easy answer. <laughs> Maybe when somebody says to you, what is the purpose God's given you? You go, Jesus. And you wouldn't be wrong. But he says, Here's the, here are the things I want you to do. Be of the same mind. Maintain the same love. Be united in spirit. And be intent on one purpose. How many purpose? One. Does that mean we, do all, we all do the same thing? No. We've given this illustration before, but when you run, parts of your body are doing different things. Your hands aren't doing what your feet are doing. Your mouth's not doing what everything else is doing. But all the parts of your body, even though they seem to be doing totally different things, 
are all getting you to the same place. And if your arms decide you're going somewhere else and your head decides you're going somewhere else and your feet have a different place altogether, you're going to be on the, on the ground in a heap. They all have to be aimed towards the same place. And though the arms might be doing this and the legs might be doing this, and if you're listening to the CD, it's all going to sound the same. And your lungs are doing something and your eyes are doing something and Every part of your body is straining, especially when you see those sprinters. Guys like Donovan Bailey, remember when he won the 100 meters, and you could see every vein in his neck is, is pulsing. I mean, just every part of that runner's body is just going. They're all doing different things, but they're all going to one place. In the body of Christ, sometimes we think unity is that we all do the same thing at the same time. It's not necessarily true. It's that we have this intent on one purpose attitude that we are going to the same place. We're aiming for the same goal and somebody does one thing and another person does the other thing and it'll all get us to the same place. But when you just say, if you say, this is what I do best, no, I'm going to do it. What if the hand said that? I mean, running, if we were going to name one part of the body that that running kind of favors, it's the feet, right? That's kind of their gig. And yet, how silly do you look if you're running with your hands at your side? Picture it in your mind, just for a minute. If you're not chuckling, you're not picturing it. Picture a sprinter running without moving his arms in the 100-meter dash. That's hilarious. You're not going to be the fastest, and you're going to be the joke of everybody the next day. Running across like Napoleon Dynamite or something. (laughs) Running with your hands at your side to the finish line. What if the the hand said, well, you know what? I think this is what I can best contribute. I'm part of the same body, but you know what I do best? I clap. That's a hand thing, right? Here's my specialty. I clap. And the feet said, I stomp. That's what I do well. And so you're trying to run to the finish line. Your hands are saying, I know I could be pumping like this, but instead, I'm going to clap. That's what I do. Would you not look silly doing that? Maybe that is what the hands do best. But it's not what they should do when we think about the body. You know, I'm a musician. I've been a musician for a lot of years. And there's a term we've, we've used throughout as long as I've been playing, which is play for the song. Now, we're not up there worshiping the song. We're worshiping God. But, but the thought is you play for the song, which means you might be an awesome guitar player. But I've been in groups where the guitar player knew they were awesome and during the whole song, they're and they're just moving around, and it sounds like junk. It sounds like garbage because it doesn't sound good with the rest of the band. They're playing their best part, but it's really not that good. Sometimes playing for the song means you stop playing for a minute. Sometimes it means you play quietly. I remember watching the Hillsong DVDs. Looking at the band, they had like six guitar players up there. Six guitar players. Do you know how hard it is to have six guitar players not stepping on each other's toes? And one guitar player, his job, he's just playing one note. That's all he's doing. One note the whole song. One guy's playing an ebo, and he's got like a part at the bridge, and that's it. You know what? They're doing it because when they put all those things together, it's beautiful. You're not showing off saying, this is what I do best. You're saying... This is who God created us to be. This is the symphony we play for him. Brother Spiro uh, has really delved into that subject. That's an analogy God's used with him, was the analogy of a a symphony, of an orchestra that God was conducting himself, where we all play our part, and and, uh, your part at the time may not be the best thing you do, may not be your own solo, but yet when we play together, That's what you do at the moment. Like I said, when you're a runner, your hands aren't doing what your hands do best, but they're doing what's going to be best for you to get to the finish line. So you know what? If you're a singer, if you're a preacher, if you're a giver, whatever you are in the body of Christ, if you're a prayer, sometimes it may be that you have to take a little bit of a back seat for a moment, but just do what you do. Do what God tells you to do. But you don't say, well, this is is how I use my gift. And then you just go and you do a solo every chance you get because we all knew that guy who always wanted to do a solo every chance he got. 
and the music sounded terrible. And you can't, as a believer, we've got to have one purpose. And when you know you have that one purpose, you work together for that purpose. Sometimes, this is the thing. The Bible says in Ephesians that we've been fitted together. God fit us together. Now, when you think of something fitted, you think of a fitted joint. You think of something that's been fitted. It's made for each other. God made you for these other people around you. He didn't just make you for himself. He made us for each other as well. And we've been created together and fitted together. We fit together. You've got a place in the body that if you were removed, wouldn't be filled. And that's important. You've got to realize I'm important because so many times the enemy lies to you and says, you don't need to go today. You don't go today, they'll be fine. You don't realize what you're bringing to the plate. Just because you're not the star doesn't mean you're not bringing something powerful. And it's so important that you recognize I've been placed somewhere. And if I've been placed somewhere, God put me there. If he put me there, I've got a purpose. And sometimes those purposes only make sense when we're together. What part of the body do you eat with? I'm not talking about the internal stuff. Forget the internal stuff for a moment. Just on the outside, what part of the body eats? Your mouth, right? Have you ever tried to eat with just your mouth? It's not fun. I mean, maybe we've all tried it at summer camp or something where it was some sort of challenge, some sort of relay race. And what happened? You got food all over your face. You look like an idiot. If you did that every day, went to a fancy restaurant, took your wife out for an anniversary dinner, and just said, I'm just going to let my mouth do all the work. And just whoosh, <laughs> straight into the plate. It wouldn't be good, would it? Now, we all said that the mouth is the thing that eats. But the mouth shouldn't be the only one doing the work. We use those hands. Now, you'd never say my hand is an eating device. But it really is so valuable in the process, it brings the food to your mouth. Sometimes we say, well, he's the mouth, he's the preacher, he'll do that. And you don't recognize that you may be the part of the body that assists that. You may be the part of the body that makes that possible, and without you, it looks ridiculous. We all have a place, and sometimes those parts go together, like the mouth and the hand. The mouth needs the hand to do something so that it can do what it's best at. And you could say, I'm a mouth and I eat well, I chew well, I'm the best chewer in the world. You should see me chew. I can chew and talk at the same time. I can chew and breathe through my nose. I can drink and breathe through my nose at the same time. I can blow bubbles and breathe through my nose. You should see me. And yet, without the hands, you look dumb. You may be the best at something in the body of Christ, but without somebody else, it's not going to work. We've been created together. We haven't been created as solo units here. There is a grace for that. You see the Apostle Paul. Though he's an apostle, he walked in, all, in pretty much every uh, gift of the five, five gifts that are described in Ephesians as, as far as full-time ministry. He, he operated in all of those at one point in his life, but that's because he was going out where no one else was. He said, I, went, I endeavored to name Jesus where he had not yet been named, to go and preach him where he hadn't been preached. So when he's in that area, he's, he's prophesying. He's starting a church. He's pastoring a church. He's doing all these things that are really somebody else's gift. But God gave him grace to do it in that time because he was the only one there. And yet you see him come back. When he comes back to the church at Antioch and there's Agabus, the prophet, you don't see Paul prophesying. You see, you see the prophet prophesying to him. Even though Paul could prophesy... He, he realized that God's placed other gifts here that are meant to work together. And when I'm with these other gifts, I, I let them shine in their gifts. And I say, okay, he's a prophet, he prophesies. He's a pastor, he pastors. He's a teacher, he teaches. And I'll do what God's called me to do. An apostle always has to, uh, apostles, because they go where, and where no one else is, they preach, they, they're, they're chopping away through the jungle. Sometimes they have to operate in all of those gifts. But once the church is established, God's best plan for it is that we have the diversity of gifts working together, functioning together, that the mouth isn't just whoosh, diving straight into the plate, 
that we have a hand that brings the food to the mouth. And you have all these other parts working together. He says, intent on one purpose. Now, who do you think gives us that purpose? Right? You all, uh, pretty much all the answers I heard were all derivations of the same thing, of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus. We all get orders from the top, right? You can't be intent on one purpose if the Holy Spirit's not involved because it says united in spirit. If God's not involved, you're going to, I mean, the Bible says, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers, plural, labor in vain. The builders, plural, build in vain. So you may be working together and building a nice little building, but if God didn't start it, it's going to fall down. It's, not, it's, it's a waste of your time. Let's look at the book of Acts. And we just got a couple of places to go in Acts here where I want to show you a practical example of what we've just talked about. Can we do that? Let's start in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus is still with them. Jesus is still with them and, and he's departing and giving them his ministry, leaving them with the task that he started. In Acts chapter 1 and verse, let's see, verse 8, Acts 1, 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now you pair that with Mark 16. You pair that with the Great Commission. You put all those things together and they've got a pretty clear image of what they're going to do, right? Here are some of the last words that Jesus said. He said this right before he left. Right before that, he said, in my name, you'll lay hands on the sick, they will recover, you'll cast out evil spirits, you'll speak in brand new tongues. You'll do all of these. He says, make disciples, Go into all the world, preaching the gospel, make disciples of all nations. He says all of this, right? They've got a pretty clear image. In fact, he lays that out for them. He says, here's how I want you to do. Start in Jerusalem. Spread out to the rest of Judea and the rest of Samaria. And then to the remotest part of the earth. He gave them a plan. They had a mission. They had a purpose. They knew what they were supposed to do. And what was the last thing he told them was just, you know, right before this, he says, wait, wait for me. You wait in Jerusalem, and I'll give you my spirit, and it'll all become clear. After he said these things, he was lifted up, and as they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? <laughs> Jesus, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come just in the same way you've watched him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, these all with one mind, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves. Listen to continually devoting. Devoting sounds pretty intense already, but they were continually devoting, not taking a break, continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering about 120 persons was there together, and said, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field at the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his intestines gushed out. Okay, Peter, there are kids in the room. You know, just chill, man. He really describes it, doesn't he? <laughs> he didn't have to say that. Just say he committed suicide. But he's like, no, and he threw, he went head first, his intestines gushed out, and he tells us the whole story. All right, okay. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem so that in their own language that field was called Hakadelma, Hakeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Now, this is in brackets, so maybe Peter didn't say it. Maybe Luke is just filling in the blanks for you. 
which is okay. It's okay to have some information, right? So this is what happens. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, let no one dwell in it, let another man take his office. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out, out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there were how many disciples when Jesus was on the earth? Twelve. When Judas died, let's do some simple math. Judas died, how many do you have? Eleven. Okay, you guys are awesome. Now, Peter's got an idea. And they're all going to have to go along with it. Where did Peter get this idea that they needed to put another person in? From straight from the Bible. He said, the Bible talked about Judas. This was not a surprise to God. God told us this would happen, and he said, let another man take his office. So if we're taking our cue from the word, we got to pick someone else. This is how you come to decisions in the church. You say, what does the word say? If there's disagreement, if there's strife, you say, whoa, 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 whoa. what does the word say about this? Because you see, this is not a surprise to God. God saw this. God knew this. Let's ask him. Now, does the Bible tell them who gets to be put in that place? No, it doesn't. Sometimes you search the Bible as much as you want. You can't find whether or not we're supposed to go to Calgary or Edmonton. Sometimes you search the Bible all you want, and we know that there's supposed to be somebody that fills this gap, but we don't know who it is. Where do we figure that out from? We've got a Holy Spirit, right? But now the disciples had not yet been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They don't have the advantage you have. Now they have Jesus breathe his spirit into them but they've not yet been filled or baptized in the Holy Spirit. They've still got to wait for that. So what do they do? Acts, they put up, they put forward two men. They say these two men are qualified. They're equally qualified. As far as we can tell, these two, they're equal, they're qualified. But do you know what? They didn't have an election. How many of you know? They did not have an election. God does not call elections very often. He elects. He appoints. So you didn't elect me. I'm sorry. I didn't elect you, but I'm pretty happy God chose you. God, as the Bible says, he places in the body as he desires. So maybe you came out of a church that elected elders, elected deacons, and I'm not talking against that. That's their business. But here, I don't see it in the word where we can just elect people. They had two men. They didn't say, let's have a vote. What did they do? Acts 24, Acts 124, it says this. It says, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you've chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And you say, now that sounds random. They just drew lots. Isn't that like rolling the dice? But God had instituted this way back, way back in the times of Moses, way back in the times of the early Israelites. He had instituted this. He said, this is how you'll know my will. You'll cast lots and I'll control the outcome. This is how you pick. I mean, if you don't know the answer, you cast lots. And the Bible says, for instance, in Proverbs, it says, if there's strife, cast lots, it'll settle the issue. Now, that sounds weird, right? Sounds like paper, rock, scissors. But it's not. Because this was how you you determine the will of God before you had the Spirit of God. What did they pray? You determine the outcome of what we're going to do. So don't think this was random. This was not random. God, they asked God to control. Now, if they just cast lots just for the fun of it, just playing a game, do you think God would control that? No. If two kids were playing and one kid won, They wouldn't say, God wanted me to win. (laughs) No, they were just playing. But in this time, they had had asked God, God, control the outcome. We're not casting lots because we feel like let fate decide. We're going to ask you to control the outcome of this. But I want to tell you something. Though you see this throughout the Bible, this is the last time it happens. Because in a few days, they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And they're never going to have to cast lots again because the Bible says that the Holy Spirit knows the will of God. 
searches the depths of God. And we knows the heart of God. Who knows the heart of a man except the spirit of man? And we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. You'll never have to cast lots. You'll never have to leave things in the hands of fate. You'll never have to just say, we'll see how it turns out, and then we'll figure out God's will. No, no, no. As a New Testament believer, you're not supposed to wait around for circumstances to tell you the will of God. If they had tried that in the New Testament, Paul would have quit. Peter would have quit. They all would have quit because they would have said, it's not working out. It must not be God's will. How do you hear the, How do you know the will of God? The word and the voice of God. As a New Testament believer, you can't let circumstances tell you what God's will is. Many people will try. They'll say, oh, this is what happened. Must have been God's will. It's not in the Bible, though. You can't find it here. What you do find is a believer who's got the Holy Spirit inside of him that can hear the voice of God, can look in the Word of God and see the will of God. Praise the Lord. This is the last time they'll ever cast lots, and they did, and the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the 11 apostles. God chose Matthias. Now I want to ask you, why they had to do this? Weren't 11 apostles enough? Apparently, there were supposed to be 12. And although they were in the right room with the right group of people, the Holy Spirit was not going to come on them until everything was in order. What had to be put in order? There was a man who needed to step into his place. Can't get around that. You had all the right people gathered in the same place. Do you know both of these guys were in the same room? Same God, same Holy Spirit. But until they all stepped into their proper places, they couldn't step in the fullness of what God had for them. I believe that as a church, until we step into our places whether or not that's a place that's public whether or not that's a place that's private whether or not it's not a place on the stage whether that's a place in the nursery or the janitor's closet whatever it is when we step into our place there's completion there's an obedience to the spirit of god there's there's room for the spirit to to really move as he's designed it to because all the pieces have come together. Now, we're not all perfect. We're not all complete. We're not all done. God's still working on us, and yet God's working on us together. And we grow together. The Bible says that the church builds itself up in love, that we grow together into a building, into a fullness, that we grow together. As we grow into Christ, we grow closer to each other because in Christ, we're all in Christ. So the closer we get to Jesus, the closer we get to each other. Isn't this cool? So we're going to skip down. With one mind, they devoted themselves to prayer. With one mind, they, they said, let's find out the will of God. And they all agreed on it. And a man stepped into his place. And what happened next? The Holy Spirit came, right? They had a great day of Pentecost. It was a wonderful time. And... Uh, so we're going to go skip down to chapter 2. Peter preaches this wonderful sermon. It's anointed by the Spirit of God. The Bible says that the, all the apostles stood together. All of the 12 that were there now stood side by side in a city that wanted them dead. They stood side by side and stood together as Peter preached. And then in chapter 2, it says Peter preached this in verse 40. It says, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day, there were added about 3,000 souls. Praise God. Doesn't just mean 3,000 souls raised their hand. Doesn't just mean 3,000 souls came to the front. It says 3,000 souls were added. Do you know the difference? Somebody can say, I believe. Oh, yeah, I believe. Somebody can pray a prayer like a parrot. But really, if there's real faith, you didn't just echo something. You believed you were born again and you were born into something. And they were added to the number. They were added to the believers. They were grafted in. They were fit in. They weren't just, uh, they weren't just there. They, they were added. Now, I do believe 
They got born again right there. It wasn't a process. It says right then 3,000 were born again. So did Peter lead him in a prayer? He very well might have. But there was faith in that prayer. There was faith in what they believed, and they were added to the number that day. And it says, listen to this, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves. There's that word continually devoting again, isn't it? Continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. You hear all those things? They're devoting themselves to the teaching that's been preached, right? So the apostles are teaching them. They're devoted to that teaching. They're devoted not just to teaching but to fellowship. Now, sometimes we, we value certain things higher, right? You know, in the 80s, there was a great move of God, and people started to get back into the Word. Praise God. You know, there was a time, and there still is, there was a time where it was just a lot of doctrine without a lot of word. A lot of people had a lot of opinions. They'd use one verse, and then they'd preach a whole sermon based on experience. Then a move of God, and I'm not just saying in the 80s. I know it happened throughout, but I was alive in the 80s. <laughs> so there was a definite move to get people back into the Word, back into the Word, and there was teaching. And you know, you heard people say, I go to the church to get fed. That was the thing they used. Well, praise God. That's important. It's not the only reason you come to church, though. Some of those same people that said, I come to go to church to get fed, they decided they stopped getting fed. They'd go home and they'd listen to tapes. And say, I can get fed at home. But here, just as important as the teaching is the fellowship. They're just as devoted to fellowship as they are to teaching. You think in order to be a good believer, you've got to really get into teaching. Absolutely. But you also need to really get into fellowship. Do you know God values those two things? It says, to the breaking of bread, that means eating together and having the Lord's Supper together, and to prayer. You know, all these things seem to be, in my estimation, on equal ground here. Teaching, fellowship, eating together, or communion, and prayer. Those are all important. Now ask yourself for a moment, and I'm not telling you, but ask yourself if some of these things seem more important to, than others in your mind. And that's okay to admit. But look at them and say, are these all equal in my heart? Should they be? You know, it's important to be taught. It's important to pray. But it's also important that God, you allow room for God to knit us together. In a North American society, we've become so very busy. Really busy. And Jesus said that busyness will choke the word out. It also choke your fellowship, choke your relationships if you let it. You got to fight for these things. I'm about done, so just hang with me for a little bit. It says this: Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed. Listen, that's all those who believed. That's the division. All those who had believed were together. And had all things in common. Do you think they lived in the same house? No. Too many people to do that. That just was not the culture of the time. So when it says they were together, what does that mean? They were together in spirit, and they probably got together as much as they could. It says they were together and had all things in common. It says they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need doesn't mean that they went homeless or they went without basic things. This means that they had extra, those that had extra sold what extra they had. This was a time where you inherited land. This is a time where your family owned land. If they weren't using it, they'd sell it and give it away to somebody that needed it. Give the money to someone that needed it. It says they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, day by day. Day by day means every day, doesn't it? Continuing with one mind in the temple. So that's where they had their worship. That's where they were taught at times, because we know the apostles, for the first bit at least, 
were teaching in the temple. They were continuing in the temple with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I don't need to add much commentary to this. You just read this, and I think it's pretty cool. I can go and put my own spin on it, but I don't believe a spin needs to be put on it. I think you just need to see it for what it is. And I don't want you to feel condemned or, or guilty because, you know what, I do know we're busy and I do know we've got things going on, but I do believe that you need to make room for things. You need to make room for prayer. You need to make room for teaching, but then you also need to make room for each other, both in your hearts and in your schedules. Understand, there's different places in the body. You know, as a minister, I don't get to... I mean, we, Tia and I, we're, we're ministering a lot. You know, a lot of my evenings are taken up. <laughs> and so I'm not as free as some of you to, to always have people over to my house. I understand that. Some of you, that may be where God really uses you. And that may not seem important to you, but that is a ministry. So don't make people feel obligated like if they don't come over and you invited them 12 times and they're just a jerk. It's, you know what? You meet people where they are, but... The Bible talks about being given to hospitality, that, that you're meant to say, you know what, I want to make room for you in my heart. I want to make room for you in my home. I want to make room for you in my time. I believe that that's something that, that God will use in your life. God will use in the church. And I want us to be intent on one purpose, but look where they got their purpose from. Jesus gave them a command. When there were some things that weren't clear about that command... When there were some things that weren't quite complete, they went to the Word and said there's something missing. And when the Word didn't tell them exactly how to fill it, they went to prayer. Do you see this? If we're just wandering around with no purpose and we're all in the same building, but we've got no reason, we've got no purpose, we've got no combined goal, we're not being assembled properly. We're not in unity. We're just not in strife. But see, God gave us missions. God gave us a purpose. And I want you to get together with people and say, all right, what's our purpose? What has God told us to do? How can I help you do that? How can we do that together? How can you and I help each other in our gifts? I know we're very different. How can we work together? You don't need to try to make everybody like you. Not everybody's like you. Not everybody's as loud as you or as quiet as you. Not everybody's got the same gifts. That's what makes us great. Let God work together with those things. Let Him be the driving force. Don't make things happen because you feel they need to happen. But let the Spirit be the leader and the guide and the empower. And I believe that that's how the church grows. That's how the church, I don't mean just this church grows. I mean, this is how the body of Christ grows. This is how the kingdom expands. Let it expand in your heart, and it will expand everywhere else. Amen.